Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to discuss how to plan effectively so that your next disaster doesn't end your career. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. And like Tyson once said, everyone has a plan <laughs> until they get punched in the face. In the world of cyber, we need to anticipate getting punched in the face. Sure, it would be nice to run such a tight ship that nothing ever goes wrong. Unfortunately, none of us have complete control over our environments. Over the last year, many of us were impacted by solar winds, Log4j, Microsoft Exchange vulnerabilities, and even a spike in energy prices due to a ransomware attack at Colonial Pipeline. Part of being an effective cybersecurity leader is preparing for IT-related problems that could disrupt our business and defining a way to recover from them. So having a plan for after we get punched in the face is also important. And to that point, we're going to talk about the cyber domain of business continuity and disaster recovery. We're also going to discuss three key documents that every business should have. A business continuity plan, a disaster recovery plan, and a business impact analysis. Let's start with the basics. What's the difference between business continuity and disaster recovery? Well, both terms deal with the disruption of services. The difference is time and use of technology. If it's a short-term event caused by a hardware or software failure, then we're talking about a disaster from which you can recover. If it's something longer term and the availability of IT services is denied, then we're talking about business continuity. Typically, whenever we mention business continuity, it's about how the business survives when there are no IT services or limited IT services to help the organization. Or to put it another way, using definitions from the University of Central Florida, business continuity outlines exactly how a business will proceed during and following a disaster. It may provide contingency plans outlining how the business will continue to operate, even if it has to move to an alternate location. Business continuity planning may also take into account smaller interruptions or minor disasters such as extended power outages. Disaster recovery refers to the plans a business puts into place for responding to a catastrophic event such as a natural disaster, fire, act of terror, act of shooter, or cybercrime. Disaster recovery involves the measures a business takes to respond to an event and return to safe, normal operation as quickly as possible. So to summarize, business continuity focuses on keeping businesses operational during a disaster, while disaster recovery focuses on restoring data access and IT infrastructure after a disaster. Let's say, for example, that you work in a small company that takes the vast majority of its orders via website. Someone burns their popcorn in the kitchen microwave and sets off the sprinkler system, dousing your server rack because the sprinkler head in your closet was designed to go off at the same time as the kitchen. <clears throat> I actually had a client whose closet network was right next to the kitchen, and I advised him to split the sprinkler systems before this scenario could happen. <laughs> anyway, your rack's fried. It's going to take a week to replace everything and get it running. Meanwhile, you'll still have to do business. The disaster recovery effort gets the hardware, software, connectivity, and power sorted out, while the business continuity effort puts up a parked GoDaddy single-page website with your phone number on it and hands out a stack of order form blanks to your employees who are now answering the phone. 
Now, sometimes there's a significant event that can really disrupt IT services for which there is no quick fix. On the 25th of December, 2020, there was a terrorist bombing at the AT&T building in downtown Nashville. The bombing took out multiple ATT services such as internet and cellular, and as a result, many downtown Nashville corporate offices lost internet connection completely. Employees who lived in the surrounding areas also lost internet access to their homes and AT&T cellular services, resulting in numerous employees not being able to get in touch with their employers. Now, if you were to experience this type of situation on Christmas Day, then you need to identify how the business can perform year-end closing despite the lack of IT services. Enter the business continuity plan. Is there a way you can manually file IRS tax forms and mail them in? Is there a way you can use carbon copy sheets to record information for transactions? I know it may sound archaic, but if the business can limp by for a couple days till AT&T services get restored, then the business can still make money, avoid fines and late fees, and stay on the good side of regulators. These are the types of plans that business leaders appreciate when we get hit in the face. So let's get into some specifics. With the business continuity plan, it's one of the most common plans you'll see in organizations today, sometimes called a BCP. Now, we've attached a small business continuity plan template from FEMA in the show notes in case you'd like to use it. The BCP specifies how to rapidly restore critical business functions in the event of disruption in normal operations. A BCP includes an overview of operations and describes how to support critical business functions and the roles and responsibilities necessary for the staff to follow. BCPs also outline the order of succession, notification procedures and communication plans, provisions for alternate work locations, and other plans to maintain and restore access to vital data. This sample template states three plan objectives. One, maintain critical business functions. Two, ensure employees are able to access an alternate facility. And three, protect vital records. The plan assumes a disruption event has occurred that affects normal business operations, limits access to the facility, renders documents and equipment in the facility inaccessible, but qualified personnel are available to continue operations. When building the BCP, you conduct a risk assessment. Risk, as we've discussed in other podcasts, is measurable uncertainty. By identifying potential hazards, assessing their probability and magnitude, which is your basic risk assessment, we augment that analysis with the amount of warning time prior to the hazard, its estimated duration, and can then assign a risk priority. For example, in some Great Plains states, a tornado may be considered a highly likely threat in some seasons with damage expected to be critical. Now, if we only get a minimal warning of a few seconds or perhaps even five minutes, even though the event may interact with us briefly, we still assign a high-risk priority. If we consider the threat of a hurricane to a city in Florida, although the probability and magnitude may be similar to the first case, one often has a few days' notice, providing an opportunity to shift operations inland and thus reducing the risk priority. By first identifying potential hazards, assessing probability and magnitude, and consulting references to estimate warning and duration times, we can prioritize our risks and feel more confident that we're working on the right things in the right order. 
The next step of building a BCP is to enumerate critical business functions. Critical business functions are those functions and critical activities that an organization must maintain in a continuity situation when there has been a disruption to normal operations in order to sustain the mission of the organization, comply with legal requirements, and support life safety. They are the backbone of a business. That's a nice quote there, but that comes from the same source as the early ones that I'd shared with you with respect to the UCF website. Now, along with identifying these functions, describe the business process. What supporting activities are involved, the lead point of contact for the main function, as well as the supporting activities, contact information for vendors, what records are deemed vital for this business, the maximum allowable downtime before serious damage to the organization occurs, the overall criticality of the business function of the organization, and a list of required resources. For example, credit card processing allows the organization to process payment from customers in a timely and cost-effective manner. It receives its inputs from the order entry system, and its output is to finance, as well as sending a release to the shipping department. Joe Smith is the primary contact at extension 1337. Sally Jones is the alternate at extension 5150. The vendor supporting the system is Acme Payments, and their customer service number is 8675309. The associated vital records are stored in our PCI database, and if that business process is down for more than four hours, our manual backup process will be unable to keep up and will begin to lose revenue. This system is therefore assessed to be highly critical to the organization, and such and such equipment and connectivity are necessary for its effective performance. Do you see how that all puts together with regard to those things, with regard to enumerating a critical business function? Now, after we've gone through for our critical business functions and added those fields, we establish a procedure for activating the plan. What are the triggers during normal business hours, after hours, and what specific actions must occur when the bubble goes up? By the way, I haven't been able to find a definition of that term on the internet, but it's what we used to use as a euphemism in the military for the start of a conflict. Speaking of military, we used to practice our call trees, which are made easier today through text messaging, broadcasts, and the like. But back in the day, we had to call on the telephone, and each person in turn would call a few others. And in a similar manner, should outline a method of contacting all of your necessary personnel as quickly as possible and practice it. If available, identify alternate sites in priority order. That priority could be based on distance, costs, time to configure, whatever metric makes most sense in that situation. In keeping with the theme of the bubble going up, make sure you have your own site hour picked out in advance. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, look it up. Next, establish delegations of authority so that alternates are named in case the primary actor is unavailable or unreachable. Note that a person may not have a singular replacement. Responsibilities can be divided across alternates, so ensure that you are very specific in defining the authorities to be delegated, as well as precise conditions for when the alternate assumes and relinquishes responsibility. Finally, establish criteria for deactivating the plan when critical business functions are restored or alternate facilities are in place. Using the priorities established earlier in the BCP process, Re-establish services in the order of greatest impact to the business, and when full capacity or agreed-upon limited capacity is restored, stand down. Next, 
a disaster recovery plan or DR plan or just DRP is different from a business continuity plan. A DRP focuses on providing smooth and rapid restoration of services. This is achieved by training personnel on emergency procedures, minimizing interruptions to operations, and limiting the extent of damages and disruption. You can think of fire drills as a textbook example of this. Now, there's a history behind that. In 1958, a private Catholic school in Chicago had a fire where students and even teachers were trapped on the second floor, not knowing how to get out of the building safely. Now, even though the building had fire exits, fire extinguishers, and had passed a fire inspection two months prior, it lacked smoke detectors, fire alarms, and was overcrowded. Several children died, and as a result, fire drills became the norm in thousands of schools around the country within a year. In IT, application teams should have a disaster recovery plan that identifies information systems backup procedures. For example, the XYZ system needs a daily backup. To ensure backup activities are being performed, a journal showing when backups are performed should be created and audited. This backup plan should have detailed procedures showing step-by-step -step commands to perform backups. Now, IBM has a disaster recovery plan template that we've attached in the show notes to help walk you through this process. In their plan, they recommend that you document emergency response procedures, backup operations procedures, and recovery actions. These would contain detailed checklists that employees could follow. The first section of the DRP lays out the plan's major goals, such as minimizing interruptions, limiting disruption, establishing alternative means of operation, and training personnel in emergency procedures. Next, identify all persons associated with participating in the plan, including contact information. Specify applications and hardware associated with the plan, as well as the location of backups and procedures for creating and retrieving them. The disaster recovery procedures list the details in a checklist or some other easy-to-follow format. Remember, disaster recovery plans are tactical in nature. Nobody should be assembling the team for a conference to discuss what should happen next. One key aspect that's included in disaster recovery plans is identification of cold, warm, or hot sites. Now, a cold site has power, connectivity, and room for placing hardware. Software would need to be ordered and installed, and finally data is added to the mix. Cold site could take up to a month to get running, but it's the most cost-effective option. As you can imagine it's used for things that aren't quite mission critical, but still we got to get up and running eventually. A cold site is really, yeah, I mean, it's there. You can do it. But better would be a warm site. A warm site has power, connectivity, and most, if not all, of the hardware. Now, software is present, but might need to be updated before the data brings it up online. Now, a warm site could take about a week to get running properly. But, you know what? If it's more essential, it's there. A hot site has power, connectivity, redundant hardware and software, staffing, and is fairly current on data just needs the most recent data sets to get up and running. A hot site could be up and running in a matter of minutes to a few hours. Now, as you can imagine, the price increases rapidly when going from cold to warm to hot, but some missions may require the investment. For example, a stockbroker cannot afford to lose a few hours of trades. Remember, the key to any disaster recovery plan is testing it. 
If you have a disaster recovery plan that says, if this system goes bad, restore from a backup, that looks really good on paper. But there's a variety of ways even simple disaster recovery plans can go bad. Hmm, here's an example. Let's say you have an application that's tightly integrated with three other applications. If you restore only one of the four applications to a prior timeline, then you may have created a giant problem for the three other systems when their data just doesn't compute. This could be extremely bad if you were talking financial accounting systems where everything has to balance. So please, please test your disaster recovery plans. You'll learn things. You'll get faster at executing them the more you do, just like you get better at escaping a building the more you practice fire drills. Oh yeah, one other pro tip, time your DR tests. When you perform the test on your disaster recovery plan, make sure you keep track of the time. That way you can say it took us 25 hours to complete the entire recovery exercise. Now, based on the maximum allowed downtime identified by the business continuity plan, we've determined ourselves to be with or within or without normal tolerance of the business, hopefully within it. Now, you can also use that as a metric to encourage your team to beat the last number so you can focus on continual improvement. Lastly, a business impact analysis, or BIA, is a third document every organization should have with respect to planning to recover from an outage. Essentially, it is a catalog of IT-enabled business functions by department, business function, or process listing the operational and financial impact of outages of various durations. A sample starting document is from ready.gov, and it's in our show notes. Note that the expert here is not the CISO. Sorry, it's the business process owner. The importance of a BIA is to allow business input into prioritization of recovery efforts. The first BIA that I did was quite a few years ago, and it was a company that was consolidating eight data centers into one. And they were a telecommunications firm, and they wanted to know what should they put on their hot site. Well, as I said before, hot sites are very expensive, so you don't just casually put everything up there. So I got hired to come in there as a 20-something-year-old consultant to go sort this out for this big company. Now, I don't know how to run a telecommunications company now, and especially not at that age. But I knew how to listen, and I knew how to write the, ask, ask the right questions. So what I did is I went to each of the different business functions and I sat down with accounts payable and said, what if your accounts payable were down for an hour? Well, yeah, we just worked through lunch. Okay, what if accounts payable were down for a week? Well, you know, we might be at or past deadline, but most people won't worry about it. You know, our vendors are good. What if you're down for a month? Well, then we're going to be making late payments. What if you're down for six months? Um, our suppliers had probably cut us off and then we'd really be in trouble. Hmm. So now we're starting to see how the accounts payable function gets more critical as time goes by. Then I sat down with accounts receivable. What if you couldn't cash a check for an hour? Meh. What if you couldn't cash a check for a week? Well, we have enough float in our treasury account. We're probably good. What if you couldn't cash a check for a month? Well, then we need to do some treasury functions, start moving things around. What if you couldn't cash a check for six months? Well, we'd either need to float a bond offering or a stock offering or take on some loans or we're out of business. Hmm. Then I sat down with the person who ran the 911 emergency line and asked her, what would happen if 911 were down for an hour? Well, that would be horrible. 
you know, we can't do that. We, it's a service that has to be up. Okay, what if it were down for a week? Well, if it can't be down for an hour, it certainly can't be down for a week. And pretty quickly, we find out that of these three, and there's many other business units I talked to, that 911 was the most important. What came as a result of that is I took all of those answers, rank ordered them based upon the importance to the business in terms of that outage, and I then went ahead and costed out what each of those applications would require to support in the hot site. And I then took a running total on this prioritized list and I brought it in as my deliverable. And I said, what's your budget? And when they drew the line, they said, can you live with the thing, the first thing below that line? Because it didn't make the cut. And if the answer is no, you need more money, right? Because you've already said everything above that line is critical. Now, if the one below you could live without, then you say, hey, look at the last thing above this budget line. Do you really need that one? And maybe not. So you can now spend a little bit less money. And so we had a way to right size the entire backup disaster plan, hot site, based upon a pretty straightforward methodology of doing a BIA. And as I said, this is something that I had done, it's kind of scary, 35 years ago. Hasn't changed a whole lot. It's got better tools now. When it comes to estimating financial impact, you can be the expert by providing data from studies, such as the Verizon Data Breach Report or maybe one of Larry Poneman's studies that estimates cost for compromised records based on industry and quantity. So you can help put a little bit of believability behind those numbers. Now, having a business impact analysis is extremely helpful during an incident such as a ransomware event. Imagine if the company's customer resource management system had been breached. You could refer to this document to show the potential financial loss and provide a quick response to legal or the CEO when they ask you as a CISO how bad the damage is going to be. Now, once you've built these three important documents, that is the business continuity plan, the disaster recovery plan, and the business impact analysis, you should ensure that you are ready to present them on your next audit. If you have these documents already in place, ask your staff when was the last time these documents were updated. Ensure you have a section that shows reviewed by with the name, title, and the date. Plan annual tests for the DR plan and exercise them. For example, you might test failing over from the primary location to the backup once a year. Next year, you might perform a DR test where you restore from backups for each financially significant application and test for accuracy. Lastly, remember to brief these three documents to the business at least once a year. If your team doesn't remember they have them, they'll be less likely to update them, and then you're going to be out of compliance. And additionally, you might find the circumstances of your plan not being as practical as you think. For example, some organizations might have policies and call trees conveniently located in the office. However, as we found out in March of 2020, with everyone required to work from home, those items might not be accessible when you need them. What's interesting is back in January of 2020, I just finished rewriting our disaster recovery plan. And it was around what happens if people could not get into the office. Maybe we would have another snowmageddon and people are blocked out. Or the D.C. metro goes down. Or there's a protest in the streets because this was in northwest D.C. Or there's a water main break or something else. And so basically it was how would you continue business if you could not access the computer systems 
and the information and everything else that's at work. Okay, well, February of 2020, at the beginning when we're just at the cusp of COVID, my boss, who's a chief operating officer, said, hey, Mark, I need you to write a pandemic response plan just in case. Because we didn't know yet. Well, that disaster recovery plan became the pandemic response plan, almost with a, a global search and replace, replace disaster with pandemic, because it was a fundamentally the same situation where you can't get in the building for long periods of time and whatever you left on your desk is stuck on your desk. We then tested it. On Wednesday, we told everybody, take your laptop home with your charger, take your cell phone home with your charger and work from home on Thursday. It was the first time we'd all work from home. That whole idea of work from home was, wasn't even a, a reality. And then on Friday, we all got back together. We discussed what worked, what didn't work. We can tweak this. Oh, I forgot to bring this thing home. And they put out the word Friday afternoon, take home your laptop and your charger, take home your cell phone and your charger and everything else that you think you might need in case we have to do it again. Well, over the weekend, DC went into lockdown. And we proceeded to go in this disaster recovery state with people not coming into the office for approximately 64 weeks until we were able to start to resume somewhat normal operations. And guess what? We didn't miss a beat. Because we had developed it in advance, we had rehearsed it, we had evaluated it, it works. This stuff works. And then all of a sudden, here you are as a CISO, the plan that you write for recovery becomes the plan for the whole business. And if you do it right, you get to be the hero. Pretty cool. Well, thanks again for listening to the CISO Tradecraft Show. We hope you've enjoyed learning about disaster recovery and business continuity as you increase your tradecraft. And as always, if you like the show, share it with someone else. Perhaps there's someone who could benefit just as you did from the show. This is G. Mark Hardy, and thanks again for being a listener, and stay safe out there.